Hello, and welcome to the Asia Perspectives podcast from the Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm your host, Jason Winsunas, Senior Editor at the Economist Intelligence Unit. In the past two episodes released before the U.S. elections, we talked about how either a Trump second term or a Biden first term might have different implications for businesses in Asia and the region as a whole. A lot has happened since then, and now that we have more clarity on the results, we thought it would be a good time to dig deeper into what Biden's presidency will mean for Asia. Once again, I'm happy to be joined by Nick Morrow, our lead analyst for global trade, while also covering economic and political developments in China, Macau, and Taiwan. Welcome back to the podcast, Nick. Thank you very much for having me back. And for a perspective on the Biden campaign, we're glad to have Ashley Feng on our show today. She is an independent researcher and former research associate for the Energy Economics and Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Her research interests include U.S.-China trade relations, China's economic policies, and China's global economic footprint. So welcome to the show, Ashley. Thanks so much for having me. Ashley is based in Washington, D.C., so before we get into the politics, let me just ask you, Ashley, quickly, how has it been in D.C. since the election? You know, what's the sentiment there? It's been quite interesting. So on Saturday, when election results were announced, it was quite jubilant. There have been news stories that have come out since then that says that D.C. on the day that the election results were announced bought more champagne in the past two New Year's Eves. But then this weekend, we had almost a complete reversal where we had the Million MAGA March in D.C. But I think overall, people are excited for a new administration to come in. Now, Nick, both the EIU and our colleagues at The Economist made election predictions. And as you said in the previous podcast, the EIU prediction was for Biden victory. So still seems like that's going to hold. But was there anything else that we predicted along with that that came true? I think we're generally pretty happy about our call there. We were expecting a bit more of a solid Democrat performance than what actually occurred. So in other words, our original expectations included an assumption that the Senate would go blue, for example, but that didn't happen um, or it hasn't happened yet. I mean, I guess we'll have to see what happens with the Georgia runoff elections before we know for sure. But beyond that, a lot of the elements of our call came true. So we expected President Trump to take an early lead in terms of in-person voting, for example, and for him to prematurely claim victory, but then that the absentee ballots would see his lead disappear once postal votes were counted. And we'd also expected the Trump campaign lawyers to launch lawsuits in battleground states to question the validity of the election, which again, has happened. So I mean, as a forecaster, I'm pretty content with the outcome, even if from a personal perspective, I'm a little bit horrified. Now, Ashley, since your research interests are around you know, U.S.-China trade relations and policies. Let's let's go in that direction first. A day after the first TV network in the U.S. called the election for Biden, his campaign published a transition website that outlines the president-elect's four priorities, which were COVID-19, economic recovery, racial equality, and climate change. What are your thoughts on those goals and Is there anything in them that we should be looking out for over here in Asia? Let's just start off with COVID-19 itself. Um, So on the transition website, it talks about rebuilding back a monitoring system. Under the Trump administration, the administration had removed several of the CDC advisors 
and also had halted funding towards that the U.S. embassies and the U.S. consulates in China were using to help monitor some global pandemics. So I think that's something that we could keep an eye out for, you know, to expect to see a resurgence or a restorance of those advisors in China and a buttressing of that system throughout Asia as well. And then also when it comes to the response to the pandemic itself, as we all know, the Trump administration announced its intention to withdraw from the World Health Organization and the Biden campaign throughout its entire campaign, you know, had really hammered home the messaging of multilateralism. So I think that's something that we can expect to see the Biden administration stop that withdrawal of the United States from the WHO. When it comes to actually cooperating on vaccine distribution, I think that is still a little bit up in the air. On economic recovery, I think this is probably the area that relates the most to Asia, in which a lot of what the campaign had centered its messaging around is build back better and this focus on innovate, bringing back innovation and manufacturing to the United States. And while I don't see this as a direct continuation of this current administration's policies, I do expect that we will continue to see from the United States that it is not going to be politically acceptable to remove a lot of tariffs and a lot of the economic sanctions that we have placed on Asian countries within the first couple months of the administration itself. And then finally, on racial equality and climate change, on racial equality, again, as the campaign has said throughout, it's been very consistent on messaging when it comes to values. And so it says that, you know, we need to put values back in the middle of our foreign policy. And we also saw the campaign be more willing than the current administration to label what's happening in Xinjiang as a genocide. So I think that's a continued indication also of possible continuing sanctions on those who commit atrocities in Xinjiang and those who continue to erode democracy in Hong Kong. One of Trump's favorite things is to call himself the tariff guy. What is Biden's outlook on tariffs? Is, Is it a tool that he thinks needs to be used to the same degree that Trump has, or are we likely to see that you know, come away more often? So I think there will be less unilateral use of tariffs themselves. But when it comes to the pre-existing sanctions, Biden has talked a lot about having to work with allies and partners. So I think there's going to be more willingness and also more political space specifically for him to remove tariffs on, you know, like the European Union or the 232 auto tariffs that we have on South Korea. So I think things like that in for countries that are not China, there's going to be more space for this new administration to maneuver. But on China itself, that's still a little bit up in the air, because even if President-elect Biden and his administration has a new conception of tariffs and how they should be used, The fact of the matter is that it's not just the executive that we have to consider in this case. It's also how Congress and the American public will react. And we've quite clearly seen over the past couple of years that Americans' perspective of China has dropped so dramatically. And you have this hardening bipartisan consensus in D.C. that we need to do something about China, definitely on the economic front. So even if a new administration has a different conception, what you have right now with the tariffs are leverage. And I don't see the administration easily giving up this leverage without something in return. So what kind of impact do you see from Biden's policies on U.S.-China relations, in particular, particularly on trade? 
How do you think the trade war between the two countries is going to evolve? Will Biden continue the same aggressive tactics, or do you think it's going to be more of a step back, an older stance? So I guess when it comes to trades, I think like there's the trade war, and then there's the larger economic competition. And when it comes to the trade war, I kind of stick behind what I just said, where it all depends on what this new administration's goals are when it comes to China's economic policies and how they intend to use the pre-existing tariffs of leverage as leverage. And I think also something that we kind of got used to during the Trump administration was this mixing of all of these different foreign policy goals and it overlapping with economic goals and then the consistent use of economic statecraft. And I think during a Biden administration, there's going to be more of what we saw before in which you will still have economic tools and economic statecraft as a tool for the administration to use, but that these tools and the goals that they accomplish will be a little bit more siloed as we saw beforehand. So for example, on trade itself, I imagine that USTR will have to take cues from the Biden administration on, you know, what do we actually want to negotiate? What are the actual economic goals that we want to achieve? But then on other economic tools like sanctions on the entity list, I think, you know, as I just said, that the Biden campaign has been consistent on putting values back in the middle of U.S. foreign policy. And so I imagine that we will continue to see SDM listings of a bunch of Chinese entities when it comes to human rights abuses and Hong Kong itself. And I also expect to see a continuation but not as erratic and not as, I think, intense as the Trump administration's use of the entity list when it comes to dual-use technologies. Well, being a little less erratic, I think, will make everybody breathe a little bit easier. But in our previous pre-election episode, we talked about business wider in Asia, and several themes that emerged from that were things like companies being forced to choose sides, supply chain shifting, diversification of businesses into new markets and so forth. So from your point of view, how is a Biden presidency going to impact those themes for businesses in Asia? I think there are a couple pre-existing trends that a Biden administration won't necessarily be able to shift. So when it comes to supply chain reshuffling, for example, there are several macroeconomic trends that are already happening in China in which companies will want to relocate manufacturing out of China itself. And I think you're also going to see this continued development within Southeast Asia where they have to improve their own domestic infrastructure, whether it's education, you know, physical infrastructure itself, or sorting out its own domestic commercial rule of law, those types of issues that will make it easier for companies to relocate to Southeast Asia. So I think that's not going to change. I think what is going to be the main shift is going to be not necessarily a softer line on China coming from the Biden administration. I think there's still going to be, you know, this urgency that there is this larger competition with China that we need to move ahead on. And so I think businesses will continue to follow pre-existing trends, but they won't be as affected by the back and forth whiplash of, you know, whether or not something is going to actually happen or not when the administration announces it. So I think that's where I see the biggest shift. And I think the second part is also going back to multilateralism is just no more inclusion of a lot of Asian countries in these discussions that the administration itself is going to have on actions that they want to take in the region. 
So Nick, this is really your daily exercise here, looking at these same issues. So what do you think about these pillars of supply chain shifts, diversification of business, new markets? Like, How is that going to change in your view under Biden presidency? Yeah, I, I agree actually with a lot of what Ashley just said. I think a lot of the structural pillars, so to speak, in the region that we've seen develop the last four years are probably going to remain, if not intensify. And there definitely is appetite among Asian governments to attract dislocated investment or dislocated trade as a result of the US-China economic conflict. One of the, I guess, risk areas that we're looking at is this idea of being forced to choose sides, which is something that has already emerged for some markets. So for example, Taiwan and South Korea, we've talked about this in past podcasts, but a number of the tech giants in those markets have had to face pretty harsh realities in terms of their commercial relationship with Huawei or other major Chinese tech firms under the framework of US export controls and the compliance burdens that come along with that. I think this discussion of reinserting values into US foreign policy and what that might mean for future application of sanctions or the expansion of the entity list, I agree with all of that. But I also think that that's going to act as somewhat of an operational challenge for a lot of companies because if you do have values at the center of your foreign policy, specifically around things like human rights or democracy, it also suggests a little bit less room to compromise on hard action. I fully agree that we're going to see a bit more of a multilateral approach when it comes to China. But if a lot of these punitive actions are taking the form of sanctions or the expansion of the entity list, there isn't a lot of wiggle room there in terms of how companies, multinational companies, can really play the two sides off. I mean, with the tariffs, you know, there's an argument around you know diversifying your operations into Southeast Asia to shield yourself from those duties, but sanctions d- demand a whole different set of compliance. I-, I think that's the one thing that we're looking at as somewhat of a disruptor for the commercial landscape in Asia for the first term in the Biden administration, and it's something that we did see emerge under Trump, and it's something that we're not expecting to go away anytime soon. So we're recording this on the day that there was a lot of news around the new trade deal, RCEP. Is that going to have an impact on on those same themes? Yeah, I think so. Maybe in a bit of an indirect way. So a lot of the discussion on RCEP has been looking at how it's you know the biggest trading block in history, or the biggest trading block in the world. What we're looking at more specifically is what this actually means for supply chains. And the most positive things around RCEP are more so this harmonization of various administrative procedures or customs procedures that are aimed at better integrating the Asian regional supply chain. And that's positive. It plays off of this idea of supply chain diversification and supply chain resilience because it's aimed at linking other markets more tightly together. If you're a company that's trying to expand your presence in the region across a number of different markets, in theory, the provisions under RCEP could facilitate that. That's much more of kind of a supply side story rather than a demand side story if we want to use the kind of economic terms. But I think the most positive aspect of that agreement isn't so much the things around tariff liberalization. Tariffs in Asia are already quite liberalized. It isn't around adding more demand to the region. Most of these countries are exporters, not importers, so demand really isn't being created. It's more so kind of facilitating an environment where trade can happen more easily. And I think with these themes of supply chain diversification persisting into the near term, or the foreseeable future, rather, this is setting up a pretty positive environment for those trends to continue in many ways to the benefit of many of the RCEP signatories. Is RCEP going to maybe lower the influence of the U.S. in the region? I think there's a really big discussion just generally on 
what role the U.S. wants to play in the Asia Pacific, and particularly what role it wants to play in these big multilateral trade deals. I think what we're looking at in terms of the Biden administration's near-term policy agenda, we don't see any real demanding immediate appetite for them to rejoin CPTPP, for example. I think there's a question there on they'll probably get involved in Asia via bilateral agreements. We might see a bit more of a representation in ASEAN regional forums, things like that. But if the U.S. isn't playing a big role in these mega PACs, what does that mean for the future of U.S. influence, particularly when benchmarked against China? And I think there is a bit of a temptation to kind of erroneously forget the agency of a lot of Southeast Asian countries. I mean, RCEP has often been termed as a China-led deal. It's not. It's very much an ASEAN initiative. But I think when you look at the U.S.-China relationship and these underlying themes of strategic competition, particularly around economic or technological dominance, a discussion around trade, a discussion around standards, investment, just a general economic presence, that all becomes very relevant. And I think the U.S.'s absence from a lot of these regional mega agreements, namely CPTPP, but also I mean, arguably RCEP, that indicates somewhat of a, a worrying trend that at least raises the question, has the U.S. ceded too much influence in Asia and what can it do to rebuild that influence under Biden going forward? So Ashley, let me get your take on that. Is there a point of view from the Biden side, do you know about RCEP and do they have plans to maybe counteract in some way or join or ignore? Like, What do you think is happening there? I have no discernible insight into whether or not a Biden administration will want to join RCEP. But I think this kind of gets to the larger question of, I think, what we're trying to balance between, which is what is a positive agenda and what is a negative agenda for the future of the United States economic order in Asia, right? So a lot of the Obama administration, when it came to TPP, that was a great positive agenda for how they imagined to set standards and rules in Asian Pacific trade. But their negative agenda was more, you know, pursuing cases at the World Trade Organization and a lot of there were some results, but it wasn't enough. And from the Trump administration side, there's been less of a positive agenda. You know, they had the one digital trade agreement with Japan, but they focused largely on the negative side, on these negative tools. And so the question for the Biden administration is, how do you balance between the two, whether or not rejoining TPP, I personally just don't see a way forward right now. And it's not because of a new administration. It's just the attitude in Congress. A lot of the, I think, free traders that you could have relied on in 2016 to help ratify the passage of TPP, they're now gone or they've reversed their policy positions. So it's just that much harder for them to do so. But I do think that this is a larger question on how would the United States set the rules of Asia-Pacific trade in the region. And I personally don't think there's a very good answer right now for the transition team or the administration that's incoming. So Nick, the EIU's U.S. research team recently published an article on Biden's policy priorities. It was mentioned in that article that Biden will face legislative barriers on a number of central issues for Democrats, including public health care and education spending and tax reform. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here and test you. You know, Can you give us a quick summary of the highlights from that report? Sure. And I'm pretty happy to say that a lot of what we're kind of expecting Biden to focus on 
kind of mirrors what Ashley was saying uh, in terms of what she thinks the Biden administration is going to see as their priorities. So uh, I think we have a general degree of consensus there. But for us, I mean, the number one issue we think that the U.S. probably has to tackle is just COVID-19. Biden has already put together um, that transition COVID-19 advisory board. And I think from our perspective, the fact that those actions came before any other news around political appointments was a pretty important signal that this is going to be a very big priority for the incoming administration. But beyond COVID-19, I mean, we'd expect other day one priorities to include economic relief. There really hasn't been a revival of stimulus measures to kind of respond to the pandemic-induced disruptions that we've seen this year. That said, any kind of economic relief that we'd expect would probably inevitably have to be what we'd call a compromise bill between Democrats and Republicans. That would likely be smaller than the $3 trillion bill passed by Democrats in the House of Representatives in May. I think the fact that we do have a potentially divided Congress suggests that efforts at passing a more ambitious spending package is probably unlikely. And so even if this provides some much needed support to certain sectors, it's probably going to fall short of engineering a meaningful boost to the American recovery, which, I mean, is going to have ripple effects for the rest of the world. I mean, the U.S. is the world's largest importer. Asia depends heavily on U.S. demand. So if we start to see economic momentum continue to lag in 2021, that could have repercussions for the global recovery elsewhere, at least the trade-driven recovery elsewhere. Beyond that, we talked about this in the podcast already, but other priorities would likely include strengthening environmental protections, trying to raise corporate taxes to, to fund those fiscal stimulus measures, but we don't expect them to be super successful there. And then investing in education, childcare, elder care, other social support programs. Um, but we do expect him to adopt more of a centrist pledge, more of a compromise stance in mind, because again, the political landscape is, is so divided. But I think this kind of reiterates what the recurring theme has been through this episode. These are all, you know, as you'll probably notice, domestic issues. And, and I mentioned that because we don't expect Biden to immediately re-engage on foreign policy issues. And I mean, we do agree that rejoining the Paris Agreement or reversing the withdrawal of the WHO are probably going to be day one priorities. But I mean, I agree with Ashley on the prospect of CPTPP. I mean, the attitude towards trade in DC right now just seems very poisonous. And that poisonous attitude is very bipartisan. So even if We'd expect Biden to keep a hard line on China in terms of economic or trade issues. It doesn't necessarily mean that that will translate into, to use Ashley's words, a bit more of a positive trade agenda elsewhere. So how do you think businesses in Asia are feeling about a Biden presidency? Is this something that's seen as a net positive? Is it just uh, more of the same? Like, what, what do you think is the, the overall agenda there? Yeah, I think mixed in the sense that a lot of businesses were actually somewhat quietly supportive of the Trump administration in terms of their actions on China. I think there was a lot of frustration from the Obama years where we saw these bilateral negotiations happen twice a year and we had these huge outcome statements and yet real progress wasn't being achieved. And so there was a lot of frustration and the fact that certain punitive actions were being taken against China, I think a lot of people quietly supported that even if they didn't support tariffs necessarily as a, as a tool to achieve those goals. But I mean, overall, when it comes to Biden, I think the main thing that companies have been worried about over the past four years is uncertainty. I mean, uncertainty is bad for business, it's bad for trade, it's bad for trust, it's bad for strategic planning, forecasting. At the very least, we'd expect the Biden presidency to re-inject a sense of certainty and stability, not just in the US-China relationship, but the policymaking landscape more generally. I think companies are generally on board with that, even if they might be a bit wary of, say, his corporate tax agenda. Overall, 
the fact that we might see a bit more of a, a calming down uh, in the landscape is probably a positive. I mean, less policy by tweet is probably a good thing. And I think a lot of corporates would agree with that sentiment. So aside from the trade war, we also had the development of a tech war. So to switch gears a bit into that area, Ashley, I understand one of your research areas is national security. And there's a number of factors contributing to the proliferation of fake news, say, or misinformation. You know, the most prominent part of that is social media, which makes it easy, you know, for conspiracy groups like QAnon and things like that to gain popularity. And this, of course, has been fueled by the pandemic as well. But as a national security concern, how do you think the Biden administration is going to handle that bag of tricks there? Misinformation and disinformation is just such a huge problem right now. It's affected how a public response to the pandemic could be shaped. And it's affected a lot more than that. You know, there was a lot of misinformation during the campaign around around Hunter Biden in this this dossier. And so the Biden administration, I think what will end up happening is kind of this return to believing in science and believing in facts. And so I think something that was relatively underappreciated during the campaign was every time the Trump administration came out with misinformation or disinformation, the Biden campaign countered it with the fact checking and they promoted it all over social media. And I think that this misinformation and disinformation just tying it a little bit back to uh, what Nick was just talking about with businesses and a Biden administration is Social media companies, the landscape has also changed drastically for them over the past four years. And during the Obama era, I think a lot of people and businesses themselves saw themselves as doing good for the American public. And as we saw with the 2016 and now 2020 elections, social media companies, they are now kind of the center of a lot of disinformation and misinformation that are coming out. So I think the Biden administration is going to start exploring options on, you know, how do you make social media companies more responsible in the information that is spread on their platforms? And again, you know, like this isn't just a new administration problem. It is also a a congressional problem as well. And it's interesting because I think both those on the progressive left and those on the far right, they agree that, you know, social media companies have accumulated too much power, but they're answer to how to deal with this is different. I think on the left progressive side, you have this larger acceptance in breaking up the monopoly that a lot of these social media companies have over the landscape. On the far right side, you have years now seeing a proliferation of new social media platforms where they believe the conservative perspective can be shared unhindered. And so a Biden administration is not just going to have to, you know, use the U.S. government's regulators to deal with this problem, but they're probably also going to have to face a lot of new proliferation of legislation ideas that are coming out of Congress as well. And this actually intersects really interestingly with this larger U.S.-China question, right? So like a big economic tool that has been expanded under the Trump administration is CFIUS or the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And under FIRMA, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, which updated and expanded the purview of CFIUS, you had a new insertion of what constitutes national security. And one of the updated definitions that is now in FIRMA, which is now a U.S. law, is the idea of personally identifiable information. 
So I think U.S. tech companies are also going to have to come to more terms with they are in possession of a lot of very valuable data and that CFIUS, a national security focused ad hoc interagency process, will now have jurisdiction over interactions that they have with foreign governments and foreign entities. So how does that then play into concerns about Chinese social media like TikTok, which we've just seen is not going to be banned, or maybe it's still going to be banned, still unknown, but also WeChat. Like, How do you think that's going to play out under the new administration? It's a very interesting question because specifically for TikTok, the answer right now is who really knows what's going to happen over the next two months. So there was, first there was the CFIUS decision that ByteDance and TikTok would have to divest from Musical.ly, which was the original U.S. company that they invested in to make TikTok what it is today. But then instead of following the CFIUS decision, the president used AIBA, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, to essentially force a ban on TikTok. But then you had a judge place a halt to that ban. And then I think this was just over the weekend that the Commerce Department also indicated that they might not necessarily enforce the president's AIPA order in which they would then ban TikTok from the U.S. market. And a lot of concerns around Chinese surveillance intersects very well, unfortunately or fortunately, with the new U.S. definition of national security and specifically personally identifiable information. And so I think that this new definition of national security as well as concerns about Chinese export of surveillance technology and, you know, a lot of Chinese tech companies having businesses that do support what's happening in Xinjiang, all of this intersects in this one area. And so a new administration is going to have not necessarily new tools, but they will have tools that have been shown to be quite creative and inventive as the Trump administration has demonstrated. So they're going to have a wider range of ways to deal with an issue. And just like pulling it very back to what I've been repeating a lot of putting values in the center of foreign policy, it's hard for, I think, a lot of Chinese companies to divest themselves from interests of what the state wants. If those state interests keep running up against what are now considered U.S. national security concerns, then I expect them to be continued targets, even under a new Biden administration. So Nick, just to quickly close this out, because we're out of time, but are TikTok and WeChat as much of a concern in the rest of Asia as they seem to be for the U.S.? I think it depends on who you ask. So the WeChat ban, I think, is a bit more of a concern, but that's mostly because WeChat is an incredibly powerful tool in China, not just from a personal perspective. Essentially, if you're in the mainland, you want to buy anything or do any financial transaction, you need WeChat on your phone. But also for businesses, companies use WeChat to liaise with their vendors or their clients or other people on the supply chain. They use WeChat for marketing. They use WeChat for even setting up engagement with government officials, even though technically you're not supposed to do that. But there's a big question now, if WeChat is banned and you're an American company that relies on WeChat in China, what does that mean for your operations? And I think that's the big thing that people are looking at right now. There's been some interesting discussion on how WeChat and then Weixin are technically different companies. And so that might be one of the ways that people can get around this. But that's really where I'd see the discussion as it's unfolding in Asia. I think if you want to draw parallels to 
this idea around national security, data governance, personal data protection, we are seeing a bit more of a consciousness develop in some markets. India is an example, but that also has kind of been couched under this wider China-India economic and diplomatic dispute. So India has banned a number of Chinese apps on national security concerns, but that could also arguably be because of the border clash uh, that the two have had over the past year. So I think to kind of round it out, there is a growing awareness that data is valuable and data can be tied to national security and that governments should be figuring out how to regulate that. China was one of the early movers on that with its cybersecurity law and some of the other standards that it's couched under various regulations in finance and healthcare. But in some ways, it's some of a bad precedent in terms of data localization requirements or its cross-border data transfer restrictions. I think the big worry for businesses in Asia is some of those tough provisions might be replicated in other markets, and that just leads to digital fragmentation, which in a globalized world is not what anyone really wants. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there because that's our time. So thank you, Nick. Thank you. And thank you, Ashley. Thank you for having me on. Over the next few weeks, we will be speaking to internal and external experts about the election outcome and how it will impact different parts of Asia. Stay tuned and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platforms so you don't miss a future episode. And if you are interested in reading more about the EIU's work, have a look at the links in the show notes. And if you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any aspect of our work, you can email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. Thank you again for listening to Asia Perspectives from the editorial team at the Economist Intelligence Unit.